This week on Dig Me Out. Uh, you're the one for me, fatty. I mean, which is a song you should never put on a mixtape for a girl, by the way. Never put <laughs> that song on a mixtape. Tim and Jay review Your Arsenal by Morrissey. First day with the Hello and welcome to another episode of Dig Me Out. I'm your host, Tim Minichi, and joining me once again, my co-host, Mr. Jason Ziak. Jay, it's episode 212, our fifth season of Dig Me Out, and we have a requested review. Requested, requested review. review. ba ba Exactly. And this lines up well with we are uh kicking off our first theme month and our theme for the month of february is brit pop and jonathan anderson chimed in with an album that i would say is an artist who helped contribute to the rise of brit pop he's not necessarily a brit pop artist but his band was a major influence on the brit pop bands and i'm speaking of morrissey and his band, The Smiths, that he was in with uh, Johnny Marr, uh, that was a band that was cited by numerous bands in the Britpop era, whether it be Blur or Pulp or um, Suede, all drew from bands like The Smiths uh, and various other 80s, Stone Roses, uh, you know, David Bowie, those being primary Beatles, obviously big influence on Britpop, The Kinks. Uh, but the Smiths were the most immediate in terms of time frame. Um, a lot of the, the bands that we're talking about in terms of Britpop formed just as the Smiths were breaking up at around 87, 88. So we're covering Morrissey's 1992 album, Your Arsenal, which is his uh, third sure. solo release after the Smiths broke up. Jay, were you familiar? I know you're familiar with Morrissey as a, as a sure. person, but were you familiar with much of his solo work outside the Smiths? Probably as much as the Smiths, I guess, um, which okay. isn't saying a lot. I more know him as his personality or so, <laughs> music celebrity, if you will. Right. I know some of the songs. I would say I probably know as many Smith songs as I know Morrissey songs, which aren't many. My first exposure to Morrissey as a solo artist was the actually, actually the album that came out after this, which was Vox Hall and I, and it features the single The More You Ignore Me, The Closer I Get, which was played on MTV a lot. Back mm. in uh, 94, and I thought it was just a creepily weird, interesting song back then, and I, I dug it. And I really didn't get into any of his albums until 2004's You Are the Quarry. I, I, for some reason, uh, his string of... He was a, he hadn't put, a, put out an album in seven years, and he put out an album every couple of years. Starting in 2004, he had um, You Are the Quarry, and then 2006, Ringleader of the Tormentors, and 2009, Years of Refusal. I got all those records, and I did like all those records. But I hadn't. I haven't gone back and listened to the '90s stuff or the early uh, solo stuff. So this was an interesting album go to, to go back to. We should do a little bit of history on Morrissey. History of the band. Stephen Patrick Morrissey was born on May twenty second, nineteen fifty nine. In I'm going to screw this up. Davy Home or Davy Home Hume, Lancashire, England. I don't know how to pronounce Davy Davy Hume. 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 
commonly known by his last name Morrissey or just Maz. Which, okay, so Morrissey goes as like goes as Maz. You got Gaz Coombs from Supergrass. You <laughs> yeah. got the drummer from Swerve Driver is Jez. There's a guy in, I think, well, the, the one of the guitar players on this record is Boz. Why did they get all the cool names that just are three letters and end in Z? Boz, Jez, Gaz. <laughs> there's a there's a Bez somewhere. I think in the I think one of the Stone not Stone Roses, uh, Primal Scream guys maybe or I don't know, but those are the those are cool names. In 1982, Morrissey cool met cool names. Yeah, cool names. Morrissey met guitarist Johnny Marr and they began a songwriting partnership which turned into the Smiths who released their first single Hand in Glove in May of 1983 they released four studio albums The Smiths in 1984 Meet is Murder in 1985 The Queen is Dead in 1986 and Strange Ways Here We Come in 1987 so five albums in four years and I believe three of those albums are in the Rolling Stone top 500 albums of all time so that's that's a pretty good showing uh, following the group's demise, Morrissey began work on a solo recording, collaborating with pr- producer Stephen Street, that's an important name to remember, who had engineered and produced several Smith singles and albums, and then fellow Mancunian, I think, is Mancun- Mancunian? Mac- Mac- I don't know, from Man- Manchester. <laughs> Vinnie Riley? How, like you're, you go full speed, and then you hit the bump, and then you stop the car and you put the car in reverse and you go back over the bump again. <laughs> it's not a bump. It's a body. And I just keep rolling over the you, body. And then murdering you hit the it. gas and then you yeah. stop like on top of the body <laughs> and go in reverse again. Yeah. It's amazing. Vinnie Riley, guitarist for the Drudy column played on this, uh, played on his first album, which was Viva hate released in March of 1988. Now, Stephen street, the producer of the first album is important. He also produced, Blur's Modern Life is Rubbish, Park Life, and their self-titled album, Blur. And he also produced albums by the Cranberries and Kaiser Chiefs. So when we're talking about Britpop, he's a fairly important producer in terms of that sound. 1991, Morrissey released a second solo record, Kill Uncle. 92, the album we're reviewing, Your Arsenal. 94, Vox Hall and I. 95, Southpaw Grammar. 97, Maladjusted. 04, You Are the Quarry, 06, Ringleader of the Tormentors, 09, Years of Refusal, and 2014, last year, World Peace is None of Your Business. He's also had a number of compilations that have come out of B-sides and singles and rarities. Same thing with The Smiths. The Smiths put out a lot of singles that were outside of their albums, and they put out compilations that covered those. So that's the history, very briefly, of Morrissey. If you would like to suggest an album for us to review, please visit our request to review page at digmeoutpodcast.com, just like Jonathan Anderson did. And we greatly appreciate it. So when you have some Facebook feedback and some digmeoutpodcast.com feedback uh, for this record, Joe Royland chimes in. There was a time I could have cared less about Morrissey. I had a late coworker who convinced me to give this record a shot, and I'm glad he did, as it completely changed my opinion about him. As and remains my favorite solo outing by him. Part of what made me finally acquiesce to hearing it was that Mick Ronson produced it. And I'll get to that later. The sound on this album is huge and song for song. I still found Morrissey's most overall consistent record with many of my favorite songs by him. The opening cut, You're Going to Need Someone on Your Side is a monster and worth the price of mission alone. From there, it just continues through greatness. Last year's deluxe reissue remaster was long overdue and really made the album shine even more. Jay, am I keeping you up? 
a little bit. Sorry. It's <clears throat> Sorry. <laughs> it's okay. Stephen uh, Frazier at digmeoutpodcast.com. T- t- what? Tim, it's my two... Uh, it's my 212th episode. You're getting bored. It's, it's about time I yawned. Oh, okay. okay I've been gotcha. holding it in for 211. I understand. I understand. Stephen Frazier at digmeoutpodcast.com says, has to be Morrissey's most poetic album, a lot of great tunes, and Robert Smith of The Cure, I don't really think, he says, dude's a pussy and he sucks. I don't think that that's actually Robert Smith of The Cure. <laughs> Folks. Somebody left that comment. Somebody left that comment. That woke me up. There you go. Jay's awake All right. now. All right. So I want to mention who's playing on this record because it's important. Uh, yeah. Morrissey obviously is singing. Alan White or Elaine White and Boz Borer are playing guitar. Gary Day is playing bass and Spencer Corbin on drums. Now, Borer and White are an important duo as they would play guitar starting with this record on all of his solo records up until years of refu- re- years of refusal, so that's quite a number of records, and then would take an album off, and then Boz would come back and play on the most recent World Peace album. So that's essentially the majority of his solo records feature White and Borer. And I also want to mention that, so this is 1992, Blur's Leisure was released in 1991, and Stephen Street actually ended up producing, I believe, one of the singles around this time for Blur, after having just you know wrapped up his time with Smith, the Smiths and Morrissey, and then would basically transition over to working with Blur and make Blur's essentially Blur's best three albums with Modern Life is Rubbish, which came out in '93, uh, and then followed by Park Life in '94, which were I think at the time two of the best-selling records in the history of the UK. At least Park Life was. Um, and then would take off uh, when the Blur released The Great Escape in 95. So they had three albums in three years, three in succession, then took off 96, and then he came back for Blur's Blur, or Blur's self-titled record, which features the song Song 2, which everybody in the United States is familiar with because it's played at every sporting event ever. Woohoo. It's it, it. I think it might be overtaken now by Seven Nation Army by White Stripes. Mm. That song is played at every sporting event. Or the crowd just chants it. Yeah, there you go. You almost don't even need to play it anymore. No, that's true. So that's the notes and the history and all that on Morrissey's Your Arsenal. Let's get into this record, Jay. And let's talk about Morrissey, Your Arsenal. I'm going to go first. I think I threw it to you last review when we did Caius. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to trade it back. and I'm going to go first okay. on this record. That's nice of you. I'm going to start with uh, Mick Ronson, and I'm going to start with uh, White and Borer, because I think those three guys help make what is probably right now my favorite Morrissey release, and that's including the Smith stuff. I find this record to be just full of energy and interesting guitar, and I think the sound, and it probably helps because I've been listening to the remastered version on Spotify, that this record sounds great. Uh, he, uh, Joe Royal mentioned the opening track, you're going to need someone on your side. I mean, the guitars just sound huge. They're just barreling through the song. Mm-hmm. 
and it just continues throughout the record from glamorous glue to uh when i hate uh, the other song when i we hate when our friends become successful and uh you're the one for me fatty i mean which is a song you should never put on a mixtape for a girl by the way never put <laughs> that song on a mixtape does that uh am i is that term mean something different in england no i think or... it means the same thing i think he's being cheeky um, okay okay but I just I love the sound of this record. I think this is Morrissey at a very relaxed point in his singing on a lot of the tracks. He, he's basically known for you know having that sort of speak song song or sing song speaky kind of voice where he's you know rattling off these kind of poetic lyrics and then occasionally going into falsetto. But he actually breaks into some genuine singing on this record, which is, I found interesting um, and. It's not this sort of like morose, you know, sad sacks type poetic stuff. Um, There's some other interesting things going on. But combined with the guitar playing, which I think that the thing that I was lacking on, you know, just just going back and quickly checking out Viva Hate and Kill Uncle is that the guitars aren't up to par with obviously Johnny Marr was is it's a guitar god you know, in terms of his sound and what he he brought to the Smiths and the various guitar players that he influenced after that. And the fact that he was able to be pretty diverse in his sounds, Borer and White are able to do with a lot of interesting, you know, heavy, not heavy, but like sort of a, a pop take on hard rock in some songs um, and then some pretty commercial rock and some pretty interesting diversions or you know not diversions but um diversions is maybe not a bad term yeah but like certain people i know goes into like this rockabilly sort of yep. is is not typical to what i think of when i think of morrissey and i just like that they take him into some other places that you've never heard him sing and over those types of songs and then they're able to bring these like incredibly catchy anthemic guitar parts like we hate when our friends become successful sounds like the biggest rock song of the 90s or something it's just like enormous So I, I I think that those three guys, Ronson with the production and and the two guitar players, just bring a ton to this record that make it really really cool and unique. And that was the biggest question I had coming into this record because, like I said, I, I knew of Morsi as the sort of personality. I knew the the vocal style. I didn't know what his records or what he was as a in terms of music. You know what what do you what what was there musically? I, I didn't understand going in this record what that was obviously it heard snippets here and there um like irish blood english heart um mm-hmm. 
and I heard some other things that, which that's sort of a up tempo rock song. Um, but then there were some other things that weren't. And with a lot, I think a lot of solo artists that maybe don't, I don't know if he plays guitar or, or not. I, I don't know. believe so. No. Yeah. I mean, it's sort of like the Ozzy Osbourne thing. Like, you know, <laughs> he doesn't play an instrument. So what, you know, what determines how his music's going to sound? You know what I mean? It's the people right. that, that are put around him. And then he uh, has to fit into that. He can't necessarily like drive what the song's going to be because he can't play an instrument. So I, I didn't know what to expect coming into it from a musical standpoint. You know, in terms of listening to a full record, like well, where does this band, where would this band go uh, on the course of one record? And I agree with you. I think the um, I was really impressed with the band. Um, I thought the players were were really um, solid in that they could swing from you know being completely convincing as a rock band but also being totally convincing as kind of a twangy country little ensemble because it's not even really a full band that that plays that song it's kind of like shuffle drums do it sort of uh, pretty much effort, effortlessly you look at a song like you're going to need uh someone on your side i mean that's a surf rock song you know it's got a little rockabilly mixed in there but for the most part that's like you know old rock and roll mm-hmm. surf rock if anything and you know they they pull it off completely i mean it's they kind of take it to a place that um you hear some of that old those old references but it's really thick sounding. It's driving. It sounds modern. It sounds relevant. It, you know, it doesn't sound like a, it doesn't sound overly retro. Let's put it that way. Even though it's clearly, um, you know, f- being uh, inspired from that place. You know, glamorous glue. That is a obvious Mick Ronson guitar riff. It almost sounds exactly like the Gene Genie. It's a little bit tweaked, but mm-hmm. it's a very similar guitar riff. Um, has a bit T-Rex too. Yeah, it has a T-Rex or, you know, that kind of, that kind of vibe to it. And it's very simple blues oriented, but it's kind of got that big bombastic glam sixties glam rock feel. Uh, and they pull that off just as well.
I will say though, it, for the first two songs, I'm, I was left wondering, okay, well, they can do both of these pretty, you know, well, and they and they transition from them. But what is this? What is the core of this band? You know, what is the heart of what this band does best? You know, it's fine to have some. I don't know. How did you refer to them? Some of the outlier songs. Well, like the, um, there was one that's like a rockabilly. I mean, you can, it, it's fine to like. It's great to have left turns and on records, but it wasn't until track three and four that I really understood what the what the heart of the band was about. Mm-hmm. Um, so. With three, you get an acoustic kind of lush, strummy uh, song. It's got that melancholy feel that I think we you're familiar with. Morsi as a voc- vocalist, you, you know, you, you you get that part of it, you know. It, but it, the thing I like about it is that musically, it leaves enough space that you can appreciate. I think um, you mentioned it the the fact that he's more than just a kind of a you know a, a speak speak singing poet he actually does some singing on this song and with the space that's i think left in it and left in the music you can really appreciate that Mm -hmm. um i think the first two tracks that are they're a little more genre specific he him as a singer gets lost in that somewhat um so i think it's you know a track like three it really i think the whole band comes together you understand the strength that he brings to the whole equation and then track four um, you know, it gets bigger, it's more of tempo, you know, it's more of a, I guess a rock song, but it's got pretty clever, clever lyrics and, um, you know, unique phrasings and, and those sorts of things vocally that I think were, you know, more expected. And then from there on that, it kind of catches a rhythm where it continues to do that, you know, so you've got these left turns, another left turn, like, um, certain people I know, but then, um, like you said, we hate it when our friends become successful as another rocker and you kind of get this rhythm of going back and forth towards the end of the record it slows down a bit and i like him and ballads or slower songs um especially like a song like seasick yet still docked which has you know a six eight feel that gives it that kind of that feel like you're on a boat that's Mm -hmm. swaying back and forth kind of thing which i think is great i think that the track nine is probably the only one that um, loses it for me just it's just a little bit pedestrian compared to the rest but the album ends strong with tomorrow um you know big dynamics coming in a very melodic bass line again i think this band is i think it's safe to say pretty under uh, underestimated you know i i'm not i wasn't aware of his band and who these guys were and he uh, you know i think for someone like me who's just sees this as, from a distance and in my periphery um you know, he overshadows any musicians he's he's played with other than John right. Lamar. So um, it was refreshing um, coming into this to, to hear, um, you know, the, the band kind of stand up to, um, I think, his personality and what he brings as a singer and and, and uh, be able to do some things that were, you know, pretty impressive. And, you know, everybody was playing for the song, which was was which was great to hear. Um so yeah, I was I was really, I think I enjoyed the the band way more than than I thought, and and I'm getting I think as I as I age, this style of singing is becoming way more meaningful to me, and like I don't know, interesting I guess. Uh oh, um, Jay's so, maturing. Yeah, I guess I don't know. <laughs> is it it? I no, just I'm like the, I like the darkness of it. You know what I mean? Like I, I like. I guess it's another way to do light and dark, right? And I think uh-huh. this, that's another thing about this record that 
that I think works really well is that the band isn't very dark. You know, I think a lot of the music on the record is actually fairly bright and poppy and, you know, it rocks here and there, but it doesn't rock in a like minor dark way. It, it, I think it stays bright and light and lush and the darkness comes from sort of his tonal, uh, his tone, his delivery, um, you know, some of his, you know, some of his lyrics. Um, and that's where the interesting, you know, mix comes. And that's just something that, uh, you know, not a lot of bands do that, you know, it's, uh, so I'm becoming more interested in bands that, that are able to pull that off as well. And mm-hmm. so it's sort of like, was a good time for me to review this record. I think, I don't think I would appreciate it as much even three years ago as I do now. It's funny you mentioned the light and the dark. Cause if you listen to like, we hate it when our friends become successful, that opening guitar riff, it's so happy sounding. It sounds like it could be like the beginning of an eighties theme song. Right, it's right. like so <laughs> bright and poppy. And then they like bring it down, you know, during the chorus and he starts singing. You're like, okay, this is a little bit more, you know, this isn't quite yeah. as bright and poppy as it, but when they, then that starts up, man, it, like, this is like, this could be lover boy doing the theme song to a Tom Hanks <laughs> TV show. Yeah. Like it yeah, is really you, bright and poppy. Yeah. I could totally see the, uh, yeah, the intro, uh, graphic, you know, for, uh, for an 80s TV show. Yeah. I want to go back though, to a song that you briefly mentioned, which is a uh, track for the national front disco. the line in that chorus where he says england for the english yeah yeah so i did some research on that okay Uh, did you do any because that was an interesting no but i was just i was just gonna say that um you know the one other song that i was probably most familiar with was irish blood english heart and knowing that song and listening to this it just made me wonder like has he oh i mean there's an obviously some national Listic threads in this th- at least through those two things and is that like something he's always done like sort of commentary and on you know english culture and politics and oh yeah heritage I mean, that, that was throughout yeah that was in the smith's lyrics constantly okay. but okay. the thing that's interesting is so the national front was actually the british national front back in the this time period when this mm-hmm. came out in 92 which was a far right group so England for the English has this connotation of like foreigners get out. England is for the English. And I guess he took a lot of heat for that when this record came out because sort of being nationalistic was seen as like almost on par with like neo-Nazi skinhead type stuff in Germany, yeah. but for yeah. the English version of it. And what was interesting is that a lot of the bands that were forming the Britpop bands like Suede and Blur 
around the time you were, you know, 88, 89, were sort of rejecting that sort of like, you know, England for the English sort of right wing politic. But when Nirvana and Pearl Jam happened around 91, 92, a lot of those bands started saying, screw America, England's better, England is where it's at, and became very nationalistic to the point where you had like Oasis playing Les Pauls with the Union Jack on them, or waving Union Jack flags on stage, or, you know, there, it be- actually became a big part of Britpop was being nationalistic and mm-hmm. fighting back against the scourge of American grunge invading radio in, in Britain. Because remember, they don't have a lot... They're dealing with a national radio service, so they don't have, in the way that the U.S. has radio stations, you know, through all over the place playing all different stuff back then. Uh, they're dealing with, like, BBC stations that are only having limited playlists, and they're getting eaten up by American bands. So they were they were dealing with this on a very small level. Um, so I was interested in reading about how the time sort of shifted where England for the English was a bad thing in 92 when this record came out, but like by 95 when Blur had put out What's the Story Morning Glory and the Union Jack was everywhere, that became a, it became a, a lot less of a controversial thing to be prideful of English heritage and maybe not as blatantly right-wing as Morrissey was putting it. Although I think that he, in the same way that like a lot of songwriters will inhabit characters, wasn't necessarily singing from his own point of view. He was right. probably singing from more from a character's point of view. Because I think that uh, Richie Edwards and, and Nicky Wire often would write in the terms of characters from Man Street Preachers, but that would that it would get ascribed to them as their political leanings when it wasn't necessarily so. Yeah, I assumed he was singing as a character for some reason. Maybe because he's he's addressing was it a somebody a David in the song? Yeah. And it seemed like I just felt like he would likely be doing that in a, from a character point of view and not from a personal point of view, just because then, you know, that's kind of a ballsy move to make to sing a song that's <laughs> uses somebody's first name. And obviously, you know, everybody can start figuring out who that is as opposed to, you know, doing that from a character standpoint, it's a little bit easier to directly address someone. So I, I just, for whatever reason, you know, that amongst others, just assume that he was um, singing from a character standpoint isn't there a, a line about something like, I don't remember exactly, something along the lines of like Los Angeles creates the words that we use, England, and do you remember that line? Yeah, it's in Glamorous Glue. Oh, uh, okay. Um, and I, from what I read, it, both in terms of reading the lyrics and then reading a, a, about the lyrics, is that it's it's sort of a outside view. It, I don't think he's singing it again like him. Himself, because he says like, uh, what do we say? We look to London, or we look to Los Angeles for the language we use. London is dead. I don't think he's singing yeah. that as a person from, you know, London. I think he's singing that from someone who's making an observation from the outside. Mm-hmm. There's also some lines about we won't vote conservative because we never have, but that's right. like in the lyrics that's quoted. So it's like it's, he's quoting someone who's saying that. So I, I yeah. kind of read that as he's, again, inhabiting a character in terms of the the lyrics that he's pr- sure. presenting. The first couple times I heard the National Front Disco, I couldn't. I was like, is he saying Nashville? 
Because it sounded like he, it, it sounded like the first couple times like he went to Nashville, and I was like, "What? Okay, well, who's this about?" <laughs> and sometimes when I re-listen to it, it sounds like some of the some of the times he says like clearly says national, and other times the way he pronounces it is a little different, and it sounds like Nashville. It's just funny. Well, the other the other song that I read that had some interesting lyrics to it is your is the actual which has the title of the album in it, which is "We'll Let You Know." Um, cause this is kind of read as being like a pro soccer hooligan song. Cause he says there's lines, we will descend on anyone unable to defend themselves. And then he says your arsenal, which is arsenal, the, the soccer team, mm. um, we, that we are the last truly British people you'll ever know. I'm again, I don't know if he's doing this as a, he's writing from a character's perspective or if he truly believes that in this sort of, I, he doesn't come across as a, as a soccer fan. Or excuse me, a football fan uh, for those in the UK. But there's these weird, you know, lyrical flourishes where I don't know what if he's speaking from characters or speaking from his own personal opinions or if it's some sort of mishmash of or what. Sometimes it's over, it's not a good idea to overanalyze lyrics and just sort of take them well, as they are. But I'm yeah, trying to I like mean, read into what he's saying because he's such a prolific lyricist in yeah. terms of you know what he's putting forth. So sure. And, you know, I, I bring the, I, I half listen to lyrics and sometimes not at all point of view to a lot of this. So, you know, from that point of view, the, it is refreshing that the, you know, his sort of, um, morose delivery at times, it, it's a more effective if he's not singing about himself. You know what I mean? Like to me, it's more mm-hmm. interesting if somebody has a, a delivery like that and what they're saying isn't like woes me right that's the most predictable combination you could have and right that's what uh post grunge was (laughs) you know it's like people with like painful painful whiny voices literally complaining about painful whiny lives you know and it was like this is not interesting to me at all but the fact that he has that you know that delivery but he's mixing it with you know lyrics that aren't always you know um from his point of view, you know, from other characters and telling stories and that sort of thing. It it makes it way more interesting to me. Um, Plus it just, he paints interesting pictures, right? When you hear certain words and things, it just, the images it creates are, you know, compelling and interesting. Go with the music and a really cool combination. So, you know, from my point of view, that's what makes it work without, getting into analyzing even though i like you i think on some of these songs i I was wanting to like scratch a little deeper there and figure out like wait what who's he talking about like right it it just intrigues you enough you know that uh you want to kind of get to the bottom of the story but i'm assuming there's no story to really get to the bottom of them some of these one of the things that i i talked about with katie actually um about this record that i found with uh british bands that does not happen with American bands, which is there's a definite sense of place with a lot of artists from in in the UK in terms of there being almost like a hip hop type rivalry between cities and locations that American rock bands don't seem to have, but it only seems to happen in hip hop where it matters if you're from you know Atlanta or California or New York or whatever. Mm. There's a lot of that in between bands that are from London that are city you know, snobby city kids who are in bands or they're from Manchester, which is more working class. 
and those are the you know the rural factory working families and it even comes up in Morrissey's uh, song we hate it when our friends become successful in the second verse he says um, uh, we hate it when our friends become successful and if they're northern that makes it even worse if we can destroy them you bet your life will destroy them I don't know who's up northern I don't know what why there's a beef with the people up that are northern <laughs> but apparently there's a beef and I can't think like can you think of that I the only thing I can compare it to is hip-hop like there's I just can't think of rock bands being no. like oh that band's from Chicago and they suck because Chicago sucks no, it's like no that yeah. didn't really happen like uh if anything people uh, get like i gotta move to seattle because i want to be in a band that's successful not that there was a little bit of that there was a little bit of that in in the on the west coast in the 80s so like all the thrash bands were from san francisco and they hated all the glam bands from la and then all the guys in seattle thought they were all ridiculous and (laughs) there was I, I, there was a little bit of a thread like that. I don't know that they, they didn't really call each other out in songs, though. It was more of a right. personal. They all would migrate to whichever city they identified with on the West Coast and sort of create their own little scenes and privately, you know, they hate each other, but not really sing about it. Right. And now they all, now they all, in hindsight, now they all blend together, like they all play together and are cool. But I have right. heard stories like that. Yeah, I just found that interesting because it, it comes up with. Britpop as that evolves too. There's a there's a, a distinct class war going on between Blur and Oasis, based on the fact that you know Oasis were from more of a working class area, yeah. and Blur were university kids. So that made them instantly, you know, you know, a feat, Ponzi, whatever they British call them. I don't know, Ponzi's a word. I just made it up. But uh, Ponzi, Ponce. Yeah. Like, Trying to say Pansy. No, that's not the one. Let me see. Let me Google that. Potsy? No, From not Potsy. Happy days? Pansy? No, Ponce is right. It's an effeminate man. A man who lives... Oh, uh, or the... So it's an effeminate man. And then the second definition is a man who lives off a prostitute's earnings. Which I thought that would be a pimp. Wouldn't that be a pimp? Yeah. I'm not I don't a pimp. Know. I'll go with the Ponce. first one, which is an effeminate man. So, Are we trying uh, to say putz? No, Ponce, P-O-N-C-E. Ponce de Leon? No, not Ponce de Leon, and not Ponce Puerto Rico. Oh, man. Ponce. Where's this going? Anyway, I was just getting to the point that there was there's a class rivalry and a, and, a, and a location rivalry that obviously Morrissey was keyed in on that went through the 90s with the British bands then and various areas around the UK, you know, Scotland and, and Wales and stuff like that. And um, probably before that, we didn't even know it. You know, Slade might have been, and T-Rex might have been battling based on where they were from. I have no idea. I get Sometimes I need a translator for the various things that are said in uh, UK yeah. bands' lyrics because it's so specific to that sort of region. It's almost like yeah. you have to decode it that I, I don't yeah. quite always know what's going on. Yeah, we suffer from Americanism a little bit. Sorry. Yeah. We try. So, Jay, was there anything about this record that you were really, that you didn't like that stood out like a sore thumb um, for you? You know, I think it, despite, I think the band firing all, on all cylinders and the majority of the time, the vocals really, you know, feeling integrated. There are some moments where it does feel like 
the band worked their ass off, dropped, you know, recorded all these tracks, and then he kind of just came in and sang over top of it. And there's sometimes where, you know, some of the some of the choruses don't quite live up to what you would want. Like they feel like they could be stronger. But other than that, I mean, you know, that's not really what he's about all the time. So I'm willing to forgive that. I guess my only criticism is that 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 point about there are moments when the vocal sounds a little disconnected from the rest of the band. Mm-hmm. But other than that, no. I had the same thought about Ozzy Osbourne. Like, how are these just are they just writing music and then presenting it to him, or is he actually in the room and like directing? Because uh, yeah. the the relationship with the Smiths, which I read in, in the book um, last year, a light that never goes out. Uh, you know, it was Johnny Marr and and Morrissey were together in a room writing songs. Like that, he had lyrics written, or he would write lyrics to what Johnny Marr was writing, and they were like together. And mm-hmm. then they brought in the other, like they actually, their record deal was based on them as songwriters that they signed with Rough Trade. It was not like the band was basically, you know, Mike Joyce and um, Andy Work were, you know, good players, but they were brought in to fill out the band, not necessarily be, be contributing members to the band um, in terms of songwriting. It was Marr and Morrissey's show. So I'm curious if that sort of format stuck where he would. You know, sit in the room with the guitar players and sort of bang out what the structure and where his, you know, lyrics were going to go, or if he got delivered a piece of music, or if he delivered them, like he said, here's, you know, here's lyrics. I need it to be this long. I'm thinking this mood. I, you know, I wonder if he says, like, for certain people I know, I wonder if he's like, I, I want it to kind of have a rockabilly feel. Or, you know, on some of the slower yeah. stuff, he's like, I want it to be like a torch song ballad, uh, you know, an acoustic song or with strings or something like that. I'm, I'm curious about how involved they were in terms of music and putting that all together. So, yeah, well, I mean, it took if we're going to use, you know, the Ozzy, I guess the classic one, it, it uh, it's taken till now to really get the story of how that all happens. Right. I mean, Bob Daisley, the bass player wrote a book and basically spilled the beans on how the whole process worked when they started the original band, which was he wrote all the lyrics, they wrote all the music and basically Ozzy would just stand in the room with them and like he would come up with the melodies, but he was like, he would just, you know, say random stuff and then Bob would write lyrics for him to sing and he would take all the writing credit. (laughs) And basically that formula is what they used to, you know, basically, you know, to build his whole career on. So then that's taken 30 some years for that to come out of what that process is. So mm. I can see like a lot of these bands, not to say he does anything like Morrissey does anything like that. Right. But it's complicated. You know, I, I could hear some of these songs like you're the one for me, fatty. It sounds more vocally driven to me, like, mm-hmm. um, whereas others sound more guitar driven and riff oriented and, uh, on some of those, you could kind of see maybe he, he didn't necessarily, he, he more of just kind of sang over it and added the vocal. Um, so maybe it's, you know, it's probably a mix of everything. Let's talk about our overall ratings for this album, Jay. I started out our review, so I'm going to start out with our ratings, and I'm going to give this a worthy record. Uh, I'm with you. I think other than track nine which is a little 
rote, little bit kind of meandering, doesn't kind of do as much as the rest of the record does. I think this is a really, really good record. And I think if you're unfamiliar with Morrissey's solo stuff, I think this would be an excellent entry point. Um, I do like a lot of the later albums like You Are the Quarry, which you mentioned that's the one that has Irish Blood, English Heart. I think that has a lot of good stuff on it. It's a long record, but it has a lot of good stuff. And I think that Ringleaders of the Tormentors is a good one as well. But I I think that if you're going to dive into the Morrissey solo records, other than getting a compilation of his best stuff, I think this is probably the best way to go. Uh, I don't know enough about his the rest of his catalog to say for sure, but I I think this is a worthy record, uh, certainly, and it's you know it's trim and focused. It's ten songs. There's really only I think we both agree one that's you know kind of meanders, but everything else is uh, it's well sequenced. It's um, great, so, you know, some really good performances. The production's really good, so uh, I can't see you know, why this wouldn't be a good starting point. I mean, Viva Hate, the first album, has Every Day is Like Sunday, which is probably one of the best-known Morrissey solo songs, but I think in terms of the sound and production as well, this is the record to to go with, especially the remastered version, which just sounds great. So uh, we need to thank Jonathan Anderson for this selection. This was a great record to kick off Britpop Month. Uh, one of the artists who help is, I guess you'd say, is pre-Britpop or a Britpop uh, founder or inspiration. I don't know, whatever you want to go with. But uh, Morrissey's Your Arsenal was a great pick, Jonathan. We appreciate it. Next week, we'll be discussing at length Britpop with our roundtable discussion. Uh, lots of interesting things to cover in terms of the start, the legacy the post brit pop we're gonna cover it all we're gonna talk about it and um that's gonna be interesting and then we're gonna have another uh request to review that's also gonna be brit pop related it'll be on the other end this is the pre-brit pop we're gonna go with the post brit pop on the other end uh which you'll be uh finding out soon so uh for jay i'm tim uh if you like what you heard leave us some positive feedback over at itunes We're done. Another one of the books. We'll be back next week with another episode of Dig Me Out. Join the conversation about this episode at digmeoutpodcast.com, where you can find links to our Facebook page and Twitter feed, as well as links to our request a review and merchandise pages. 